0: want to. The truth is, is that all of them speak to the nature of our faith. The truth is, is that all of them speak to the nature of our lives and ultimately to our commitment to Christ. You see, it's impossible for us to draw near to God and to not love people more. It's impossible. God Himself is filled with love for people. God Himself displays His love for people, demonstrates His love for people. All people, even those who oppose Him, even those who come against Him, even those who would say that they hate Him or disregard Him altogether, God still loves them and God still demonstrates His kindness in extraordinary ways to them. And it is impossible for us to say that we are increasingly becoming like Him. It is impossible for us to say that, as Ephesians 5, 1 would say, we are being imitators of God if, in fact, in our lives there is nothing but damaging relationships from our end to theirs. And so this morning, we continue seeing Jesus talk about something that he's talked about for the last few weeks. Knowing this, Jesus has spent the last several passages, we've spent the last several weeks talking about our relationships with other people, haven't we? Certainly we've been looking at the law and how Christ is the fulfillment of the law, but how has Christ done that? He has done that by talking most specifically about our relationships with others, about anger, about lust, about taking oaths and retaliating and divorce. And this week I believe we're going to see in some senses the capstone of what Jesus has been talking about all along. The the place that he's intending for us to land so that we might look like him in the world. And so let me ask you as we prepare to start, what do your relationships say about your relationship with Christ? What do the relationships in your life communicate to others? What do the relationships in your life demonstrate to others? What do the relationships in your life say about your commitment to Christ? What do they say about how you are maturing in the faith? What do they say about how the Spirit has taken root in your heart and is transforming you more and more into the image of your Heavenly Father? What do they say? If you would turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to in fact finish Matthew chapter 5 this morning. And where we've been, Jesus is continuing to teach us how we might have a righteousness that is greater than the Pharisees. And I believe that what we should see this morning is, is a sort of bookend. We're going to continue pressing forward into chapter 6 and the Sermon on the Mount. But we see this morning the last of six antithesis statements that Jesus has made. Where over and over he has said, you have heard, but now I say to you. And so Jesus has been giving us these antithesis statements. And so we're going to, we're going to see this morning as uh, the final of these statements. And so we should see it as a sort of bookend on some of the things that Jesus has been talking about to us over the last few weeks. Stand with me now as we read God's word together. We're going to start in verse 38, I'm sorry, verse 43, and read to verse 48. It says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. as your heavenly Father is perfect. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. As we come to the end of these antithesis statements, I want to just really briefly point out something that Jesus has done throughout. Jesus sets this up, just as he has has the other uh, statements like it, by saying, you have heard, but now I say to you. Have you stopped for just a second to think about what it means when Jesus does that? Why is Jesus saying that? And what's remarkable about that? We see, in Jesus' day, to say anything with authority, specifically uh, relating to, the, to, to God, to say anything authoritative theologically, to say anything authoritative from God's word, you typically had to root it in the rabbinic teaching of the day. You had to root it into some well-respected, well-known rabbi that would then kind of, that way you're kind of taking his name, you're kind of co-opting his authority so that now you can speak with a similar authority. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, he even refers to the fact that others are doing that. That's why he says, you have heard that it was said. And what is he doing? He's saying, you have heard what the rabbis have taught. You have heard the tradition. You have heard the interpretation of what's going on. But I say to you, what's remarkable about that is that Jesus does not appeal to the authority of anyone else. That Jesus does not, in fact, appeal to the authority of a famous teacher. Jesus does not appeal to the authority of a trusted rabbi. Now, what does Jesus do? And Jesus appeals to himself. Jesus appeals to his own authority. Jesus says, I am transcendent above them. I am above the rabbis. I am above the tradition. I don't need their help. I don't need their authority. I am authoritative. I am sufficient in and of myself. Now, you have to understand that that would have enraged the Pharisees. That would have enraged the, the religious elite of the day. They would have had no framework with which to handle that. This man saying this, it is in fact putting himself at the very least on a plane with the most respected teachers in history, and at the very most, putting himself on plane with God himself. And so what we have to decide this morning is the same thing that his hearers that day had to decide. The hearers of Jesus' day, whether it be the disciples on the inner circle, or it be the the casual listeners on the outer circle, they all had to decide, what are we going to do with this man? What are we going to do with this man? Are we going to trust him? Are we going to follow him? or is he just some kook? See, we cannot say that Jesus is just a winsome teacher or a good man. We either have to affirm that, uh, we either have to uh, believe that he is in himself, of himself authoritative, that he is in and of himself sufficient, or we have to say that we should disregard what he says altogether. And so this morning, I remind you that the words that we're reading are not words from a man. They are not words from a winsome teacher. In fact, they are words from a man that claimed himself to be God from the beginning of his ministry. And I ask you, brothers and sisters, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with his words? Are you going to respond to them or are you going to ignore them? There is no room here for commitment. Or, uh, there is no room here for halfway commitment. You're either in or you're out. You're committed or you're not. When we read these words, we have to decide how to respond. The specific commandment that Jesus is addressing this morning is one of the most important commandments in all of Scripture. And we can say that because Jesus himself said that. Jesus tells us that the second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the commandment that he is talking about as as we bring chapter 5 to a close. He, He doesn't quote it just like that because it was not taught just like that. It was not taught, love your neighbor as yourself. It was taught, just as he quoted it in his day, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now the reason that Jesus is, cor- is correcting this is, first of all, this is an important commandment. We can't get it wrong. This is one of the commandments, in fact, that Jesus himself says, all of the other commandments hang from it. All of the other commandments are undergirded by it and supported by it. That it, that it lays a foundation on which God would build all of the other commandments. We see this in the Ten Commandments, don't we? The two greatest commandments are what? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, right? The ten commandments, we could break them down easily into two categories. The first four dealing mostly with loving the Lord your God. The final six dealing with loving loving your neighbor as yourself. And so when Jesus says this, he's he's very emphatically showing us the nature of this commandment. And so Jesus is speaking on this day to correct what had been corrupted about this commandment. And we know that we can tell even from our text that... Generally, there are two primary ways that this text had been corrupted by the Pharisees in Jesus' day. The first way that it had been corrupted is that they had added something to it. They had added to it, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. See, they're quoting from Leviticus, specifically Leviticus 19.18. And if you were to look up Leviticus 19.18, it would say nothing about hating your enemy. It would say, love your neighbor as yourself. It It doesn't add hate your enemy. But what the rabbis had done, what the tradition had, what had happened over the course of tradition, is they had inferred from the text an implication. They assumed that what God meant by uh, was that if I'm going to love my neighbor, I must by default then hate my enemy. But in fact, this cannot be any further from the truth. As we read the scriptures, as we, we see how God deals with his enemies, as we see how God works through his enemies. We can even think of a book like Jonah when he sends a missionary to his enemies so that they might repent and be spared. And so this is something that they had, they had uh, attributed to God that was not from him. These are words that they had uh, in some way put into his mouth. And we even see this among Jews often today. That what has happened over the course of Jewish history is they have made it almost a patriotic duty to hate their enemies. But Jesus is correcting this. The second uh, corruption that we can see in our text is that they had a misunderstanding of what a neighbor was. That a misunderstanding of what a neighbor was. You see, the Jews always believed, like most of us believe, that the neighbor that he obviously meant when he wrote Leviticus 19, God had to have meant that I have to just love my fellow Jew. That I have to love my fellow countrymen. That I have to love, in other words, those that are like me. Those that look like me and talk like me and believe like me and vote like me and watch Fox News like me and eat at McDonald's like me and do all these things like me, right? That the neighbor that I'm supposed to love are those people that in essence are very lovable for me. They're very natural for me to love. Very easy for me to love. But what we know about Jesus is that Jesus had a much broader definition of neighbor than that. And what we know about Scripture is that Scripture always intended for there to be a much broader definition than that. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus 19, if you go down to verse 34, you know what it teaches uh, the people of Israel? It says that if you have a sojourner into into your country, if you have an alien from a foreign land, if you have someone that's not like you, if you have someone that doesn't believe like you, but they happen into your care, that you should treat them like a fellow Jew. That you should treat them as though they are one of God's people also. That you should give them great generosity and great hospitality, and that you should feed them, and care for them, and take care of them. But that had been lost. This is very similar to when, in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus is asked, point blank, this was uh, a common teaching of the day, well, Jesus, what is, who is my neighbor? Do you remember how Jesus responds? In Luke chapter 10, Jesus responds with what is one of his most famous parables, the parable of the good Samaritan. And he tells the story about this man that was was, uh, robbed and left for dead. And and the good Jewish priest walks by and nothing. Then the good Jewish Levite walks by, the one that, that tends to the affairs of the temple. He walks by and the man is left bleeding. The man is left alone. And then the most reviled scoundrel, the barbarians of the day, the Isis of the day, they walk by, a Samaritan man walks by and he sees the Jew And he takes him and he cares for him. He takes him to the end and he says, I don't care what it costs. If run the bill up, put it on my tab, I'll come back through and pay it off. And in essence, what is Jesus teaching us? That when we ask the question, who is our neighbor? Who is it that we are to love like ourselves? Who is it that we are to love and demonstrate the love of Christ? That, in fact, is the wrong question. The question instead that we should be asking is, what kind of neighbor are we? What kind of neighbor are we to all people, to all of those that bear the image of God himself, to all of those that God has chosen to fill this earth with that might, that might demonstrate his glory, it might be an image of his glory for everyone. And so Jesus is correcting that. And Jesus corrects it in the most extreme way possible, doesn't he? Look at what he says. The command that Jesus gives is in verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies, And pray for those who persecute you. Jesus takes this whole teaching thing, right? Jesus takes this whole corruption of Leviticus 19, all of this, and then he just punches us in the mouth with it. He just gets real, and he gets real in a hurry. He gets serious here, doesn't he? He says, not only should you love your neighbor as yourself... Just, just, since you're corrupting that, and, and since you're, you're using that to kind of get a, this misunderstanding of who you're to love, and you think because you're supposed to love this person, you're not supposed to love this person. Let, let me just clarify all of this for you. Don't just love those people that are like you. Don't just love those people that look like you, and talk like you, and act like you. Love those people that are your enemies. Love those people, in fact, those people that hate you because that you love me. Those people that hate you because you're pursuing me, remember how I told you to rejoice? That blessed are those who rejoice in their persecution? Rejoice and pray for them. Pray for those that subpoena your pastors for their sermons. Pray for those that cause you and, and accost you for your faith that work. Pray for them. And I think, in fact, what we see here is just how broad Jesus' definition of neighbor is. What I believe Jesus to be saying here is I believe Jesus to be saying, Love your neighbor even if your neighbor is an enemy. Perhaps you could even say it this way. Love your neighbor especially when your neighbor is an enemy. Especially when your neighbor is persecuting you. So love all people, even those neighbors, love all neighbors, even those neighbors that come against you, even those neighbors that are unlovable, even those neighbors that you don't want to love and you are disgusted by and reviled by and accosted by. Even them, love them. This is radical. This is radical. This, This is Jesus taking our whole world view. This is Jesus especially taking the whole Jewish world view. And he's just flipping it upside down. you see, brothers and sisters, this is the difference. This is the difference between gospel love and human love. Human love comes to the table, and we come to the table with prejudices, and we come to the table with conditions, and we come to the table with expectations that if you are like this, if you will do this, if you won't do this, then I will love you. But gospel love... Gospel love comes to the table with redemption. Gospel love comes to the table not with prejudices, but with grace. Not with conditions, but with mercy. Gospel love comes to the table regardless of your background, regardless of your world history, regardless of your skin color, regardless of all that, and it comes to you, and it is offered to you entirely. And this is the standard we're being called to. This is the standard that we are being called to as the as the church of Christ, as the people of God, as those that have been adopted into his household. We are being called not to the uh, not to just a really good human love. We are being called to a love that transcends the holy the, that transcends the human heart all the way to the standard of the cross. That we would be those that would love both our husband and our ex-husband. That we would be those that would love those that that rake our names through the mud. That we would be those that would love both our church family and the homosexual at work that makes us uncomfortable. That we would live out a love that is radical, that is extreme, that is transcendent above what is ordinary in this world, what is expected in this world, what is common in this world. And if we're all honest about that, there is nothing less natural or less instinctive for us than loving those people that are our enemies. There is nothing less instinctive for us as people, there is nothing less natural for us as people, than to pray for those that persecute us, than to pray for those that that hurt us, or, or harm us, or slander us in some way. Especially when it comes to our faith. Now, what is our instinct? Our instinct is to lash out, isn't it? Not to love, to lash out. Our instinct is to to go to Facebook as fast as we can get there and to put down a a four-paragraph rant just so that we can say, I just got to get this off my chest, right? Y'all can just unfriend me if you want to. I just got to get this off my chest, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about? That's our instinct. That's That's our default. That's where we run to. But let us be remembered this morning. Let us be remembered this morning that for all of us that have come to Christ, For all of us that say, I have been crucified with him. For all of us that have said that I want his righteousness, not my own righteousness. For all of us, God has given us a new natural. God has given us a new instinct. God has called us to a new spirit. Not the flesh, but the spirit that we can put to death all that is earthly in us. Including those old instincts. Including those old desires. Including those old defaults that we all have. And so now... We take up the cross, not our causes. Now we, we hide behind the cross, not our Facebook posts. No, now we live according to a new standard. Now we live according to a greater standard. And you say, Cody, where, how can a person love like that? I would tell you that a love like that can only be found at the cross, brothers and sisters. A love like that can only be found at the cross. After all, who was it that loved his enemies? It was Christ who loved his enemies. It was Christ that scrubbed the feet of the man that would betray him for 30 pieces of cheap silver. It was Christ in the garden that that took the ear of the man that had been cut off of his head. The the man that was coming to arrest him so that he would be executed at at a false trial for crimes he didn't commit. And what did Jesus do? He took the ear of the man and he put it back on his head, healing him. It's the love of the man who, who goes and meets Peter after the cross, after the resurrection. Peter, who had denied Jesus in his most desperate moment, in his greatest moment of deed, Peter goes and he's face to face with Jesus, the Jesus that he has denied three times. And what does Jesus do? He restores him. And brothers and sisters, let us not forget that we too were enemies of God. That we too were enemies of God offending him, distant from him rebelling against him, living on a trajectory of selfishness that was stunning and remarkable and overwhelming for us but at the cross, at the cross we return from enemies into sons and daughters that we might share in an inheritance that only Christ was owed because we now share in Christ's righteousness God always loved his enemies who prayed for his persecutors Christ prayed for his persecutors Christ, from the cross, praises as the men are very literally driving iron spikes through his hands and feet. Praise for them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In fact, it's given to us in the present participle. And so what that probably means for us is that over and over and over, Christ is praying the same prayer. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. As they drive every nail, as they spit upon him, Father, forgive them. As they rip the beard out of his face, Father, forgive them. As they put the crown of thorns on his head, Father, forgive them. As they hoist up the cross and drop it in its hole, causing his whole body to violently shake, Christ is proclaiming to the Father, interceding on their behalf, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. The standard that we're called to is not the standard of humanity. Not even good humanity. Not even top shelf humanity. The standard that all of us are called to is the standard of the cross. This love, it is extreme. This love, it is unnatural. It's in fact divine. It's the love that we see in Christ himself. And why should we do that? Why should we love this way? Christ tells us. He tells us in verse 45. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute so... So, he's telling us, this is why, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Here's what he's saying. Do this, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you might resemble your father. So that you might look like your father. So that you might emulate your father. So that you might imitate your father. This is what children naturally do, isn't it? Megan is so upset with me. Uh Megan, Gracie and I have this Daddy Day thing we do on Fridays, right? And so Gracie's really gotten like we like to go out and look for deer in the woods, you know? And so we get this picnic deal and we go out to Pine Glen and we sneak around the deer and we catch fish and do this whole deal. And, and Gracie's just all about it. like she wants to get in daddy's old truck and she wants to ride down the dirt roads. That's what she's all about right now. But see, I have this bad habit. I have this bad habit of when I'm out in the woods, I default to my old rabbit town days, okay? I, 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 default, I default back to my rabbit town lineage, and I just start spitting, all right? I'm just, I'm just being real with you, all right? I'm just being transparent as your preacher here. So, so I just start, I don't even know why I do it. I just spit. I, I, I just spit for the sake of spitting. I don't know. And you know what Gracie's got where she starts doing? You think my wife's happy with me? I got this pretty little girl with the big bow in her hair and the bouncing curls, these girly little clothes, you'll, you know? Because that's what we do, isn't it? That's what we do. We imitate our fathers. We emulate them. It comes second nature to us. If we are the sons and the daughters of our Heavenly Father, should we not look like Him? Should we not resemble Him? Should we not resemble Him in His love? Should we not resemble Him in His mercy? Should we not resemble Him in His grace? Should we not look like Him? This is Jesus' point here. We should look like the Father. Now, I think there's two primary reasons that we see here, that we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. What does Jesus say? I think the first one is is that loving our enemies reveals something about the character of God himself. That when the church, when his sons, when his daughters love their enemies, when they love those that persecute him, it reveals something about the Father himself. And this is what Jesus gets to here, right? Jesus says... In, verses, uh, in the verse that follows, 45, um, four, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says, should you not look like God? Does God only bring rain to those that love him? Does God only bring rain to those that treat him well? Does God, does God only bring rain to those that think like him? Does God only bring the rain to those that... that have committed themselves to him. No, God brings rain to all people. God brings that which they need to survive, that which brings for them life. God brings that for all people, and he rains that on all of them. So what about the sun? Does the sun only rise on those that God loves? Does the sun only rise on those that treat him well? Does the sun only rise on those that won't say a harsh word? No, in fact, you all know as well as the believers in Jesus' day knew, that even those that are wicked in their lives experience degrees of happiness on earth. Even those that, that revile God and hate God and speak against God, even they, even they get to, to taste uh, just degrees of his goodness and degrees of his grace and degrees of his mercy. Because the truth is, is that none of us even deserve a heartbeat. None of us even deserve a breath, let alone a smile. Let alone an afternoon of reminiscing and telling stories and making memories with our wives. None of us deserves our next meal. None of us deserves our next drink. None of us deserves anything. And yet God gives them to us all. He gives them to those of us that are with Him and He gives it to those that are against Him. And so when we do the same, when we do the same, we are emulating that. In fact, there's a a theological word for what, what Jesus is talking about here. It's called common grace. When we think about grace, we can think about grace really as being manifested in two ways. Saving grace and common grace. Both saving grace and common grace come from the same stream of grace that we find in the Father. But saving grace is for those that are in Christ. For those that repent of their sins and place their faith in Him. But common grace. Common grace is universally experienced by all of mankind. Common grace is that which God gives to humans because they are His image bearers. Common grace is that which He he gives them so that even as a pagan, they may experience some degree of satisfaction in life, some degree of contentment in life, some degree of happiness in life, some provision of Him. How good is God? How good is God? How good is God that He will allow those that speak against Him to to taste the depths of His goodness? As the church... It's our responsibility to aid in that. We are gifts of common grace from the Father to the world. We are gifts of common grace to demonstrate his scandalous kindness to all of other people so that in us they might see something of the character of God. So that in us they might have a clearer understanding of of just how gracious he is. So that in us, even though they are blind to God himself, even though they are blind to the gospel, even though they are blind to his good works, they might look in us and be drawn to him. They might look to us and in some sense even appreciate him. How well are you doing that? How well do you display the character of God in your life? The second reason I think is helpful for us to love our enemies is that loving our enemies reveals how satisfied we are in Christ. John Piper says it this way. The hearts of Christians are satisfied with God and are not driven by the craving for revenge or self-exaltation or money or earthly scrutiny. God has become our all-satisfying treasure, and so we don't treat our adversaries out of our own sense of need and insecurity, but out of our fullness with satisfying glory of God. You see, the Christian heart should be so full. The Christian heart should be so satisfied with the overwhelming, encompassing grace of God that we don't have a thirst for grudges in our life, and we don't have room for hatred. In fact, if you see in your life a propensity toward bitterness, if you see in your life an inability to love those that hate you, you see in your life an inability to, to overcome some small offense in your life so that you can demonstrate God's kindness to someone else. I think the question that you should ask is not, why can't I love them? But yet, better yet, deeper yet, we should ask, why is it that I'm so insecure in Christ? Why am I not more secure in Christ? Why am I not more secure in His grace? Why am I not more secure in His salvation? All of our offenses... All of our weaknesses as believers, all of our inabilities to carry out God's word is nothing more than manifestations of our insecurity in Christ himself. And so Christ calls us to evaluate our lives. He calls us to evaluate our lives in verses 46 and 47. It says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? See, Jesus is drawing a distinction here. See, he there's, there's a difference between tax collector love and Christian love. There, there's a difference between, between um, I lost my train of thought there. There's a, there's a difference between, your my goodness, tax collector love. Gentile love, that's it, Gentile love, alright, you're with me. There's a difference between tax collector love and gospel love. There's a difference between ta- uh, Gentile love and gospel love. So you love people like you? You love people that think like you? You love people that are in your family? You love your wife? You should, but so do the tax collectors. You, you, you love your friends? You love your church? You love your community? You should do those things. But you're like the Gentiles. No, there's nothing distinctly Christian about loving our families. There's nothing distinctly Christian about loving our, fam- our friends. No, what is distinctly Christian is when we love our enemies. When we treat well those who treat us poorly. When we pay back respect to those who show us disrespect. When we send back grace to those that have brought offense to us. No, that's what Christian love is. This morning... Do you have tax collector love or Gentile love? Do you have human love or gospel love? Does your love look like Christ or does it look like everybody else? Because as Jesus points out to us, the standard is not everybody else. The standard is our Father, our perfect Father who is in heaven. Let me pray for us today. Heavenly Father, you have revealed to me so many areas in my life where I only want to love those people that are like me. Where I only want to demonstrate those love to those people that are lovable. But in fact, God, you loved me when I was unlovable. You loved me when I was even an enemy of yours. And so this morning, Father, we lay our hearts out in front of you. We lay our lives barren on the cross, saying, take them from us. Let us live out the love that is the standard of the cross. Father, I pray that this church family, that this church body, would become known for this. That we would become known for demonstrating the character of the Father. That we would become known for the security and the satisfaction that we have in Christ. That we would be empowered to love so scandalously, so radically like this. God, move in us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me this morning? This morning, some of you need to come and pray. You need to humble yourself before your brothers and sisters and seek the face of God ask him to forgive you, ask him to help you overcome the inability to love those that are difficult to love in your life. For some, you don't know Christ at all, and I would invite you to come to him so that you can be set free from the sins of this world, so that you can know the riches of the love that is found in the cross where he died for your place. For some, it's time for you to come and join this fellowship officially. I would invite you to come down forward, pray with one of our pastors so that You can lock arms for us as we move out to demonstrate the Father's kindness in our community. Whatever the Lord, however the Lord moves, come this morning.